First of all, I want to thank you, Aaron. Uh, I'm here with Aaron Prophet, uh, and Aaron is a professor somewhere. Uh, can you tell me where? Yes, I am. Um, I'm a teaching professor at the University of Florida, which is located in Gainesville, Florida, and it's the flagship campus of the University of Florida public system. Fantastic. Well, I'm here with Aaron. Erin, uh, <clears throat> besides being a professor, is also the author of a book called Prophet's Daughter. Uh, she is, I believe, I believe I'm accurate in saying that you, your academic specialty uh, would be on, could be characterized as, uh, at least part of it, as, as new religious movements uh, and emerging uh, spiritual traditions. Is that, would you say that's accurate? Well, my primary area of research focus is actually religion and medicine and healing, right. but I, and I have a master's in public health and I look at the epidemiology of religion, but I have published uh, a number of articles and book chapters about new religious movements. And there's certainly some overlap between that and healing movements. Uh, and so obviously my background and my upbringing in a new religious movement that some people called a cult um, certainly has informed my scholarship and my choice to, you know, be in a part of the academic study of religion. Yes, absolutely. And so uh, your book, Prophet's Daughter, is about your time living in a, a new religious movement. And it was the religious movement, which uh, during many years, your mother was uh, the leader of. Uh, her name is Elizabeth Clare Prophet, and probably many people uh, are aware of her. Uh, and before she became the sole leader, uh, she and your father, Mark Prophet, uh, co-led this uh, the community, the Church Universal and Triumphant. For those people who might not know about the Church Universal and Triumphant, is there a, a, a short version of that tale you could tell just to give people a little background? Sure. Well, the group was actually started by my father in 1958, and its original name was the Summit Lighthouse. And it had sort of a loose organizational structure. It was meant to sort of just have a mailing list and, and do group meditations and things like that. But gradually over time, especially after my father died in 1973, and my, he had met and married my mother in 1961. So uh, they were married in 63. So she quickly became a co-leader with him. Uh, and then after his death, it became a church. Um, it promoted Eastern and Western ideas. A lot of it was built upon theosophy. If anyone's familiar with the Theosophical Society, the idea that there are divine beings or masters that are sort of guiding the development of humanity and that people themselves can ascend and be like ascended masters. Uh, that's really the primary focus of the church and its teachings. It has a lot of self-help uh, techniques and prayers that it promotes for people to develop themselves spiritually. And um, it was probably at its peak in the late 1980s, early 90s, but after my mother became ill and then later passed on in 2009, it's um, dwindled somewhat, and but it still exists and still has a headquarters in Montana. 
I see. Now, I, I, so I remember Elizabeth Clare Prophet uh, for two reasons. One, uh, because I had read The Lost Years of Jesus uh, years ago uh, and really loved it. And I think you actually worked on that book. Uh, and, and then, of course, like lots of people, especially those that were spiritually aware, uh, there was a whole story around a prediction of the end of the world and, and building uh, underground bunkers for the community to move into to survive, which sort of, in my mind, became one of the quintessential stories uh, of kind of far out uh, far out happenings. And when I read your book, I realized it really was a far out happening. Um, so can you just say just a little bit again, for people who might not be aware of that part of the story, uh, sure. what was going on? Sure. You know, one of the things I try to unpack in the book is sort of how can a movement which seems to be focused on positivity and uniting of East and West, Eastern and Western traditions with a book like The Lost Years of Jesus, which says that Jesus went to India and that there's you know, compatibility between Hinduism and Buddhism and Christianity. How can a movement like that end up coming to worldwide attention through building bomb shelters you know, in a remote location in Montana? Uh, and what does this say about alternative spirituality in general? Um, you know, my parents were sort of part of what you might call sort of a more conservative strain of spirituality that was definitely influenced by some apocalyptic ideas, even from theosophy. In fact, Madame Blavatsky talked quite a bit about, you know, she's kind of the, one of the sources of the idea that there, there are these planetary cataclysmic changes every so often, right? And so there were not only in our group, but in a number of other new age groups, these ideas that there were gonna be big earthquakes, that parts of the United States were going to be underwater. And there was a sense, even from the very beginning of our movement, that we wanted to have some kind of a retreat or place to survive these prophesied changes, which were supposed to be the result of bad karma. And uh, during the late 80s, my mother, um, you know, my parents' last name really was Prophet. I always have to say that. My father's uh, was descended from some Scots immigrants to Canada. And... Uh, but he thought it was, you know, he had been raised in the Methodist church, but he also had some Pentecostal leanings, and then he got into Rosicrucianism and some esoteric thought before he found the theosophically influenced groups. So he, he had this idea of karma, that there was sort of bad karma that was coming back in cycles. And my mother sort of elaborated on these ideas. And if you followed their spiritual work, you would see that kind of interlaced among the positive spiritual affirmations. There was always some kind of a, of a you know, a thread of, you know, warning. If people, people need to sort of change their ways. Otherwise, you know, bad things will happen. And so I think our motive in having a retreat and moving to Montana was partly to have a place to meditate and get away from cities. And it, it was also uh, in anticipation that there might be these big events. And so in the late 80s, my mother started giving sort of more dire warnings and prophecies and sort of basically told her followers that they should leave 
the coasts, coastal United States. She recommended people in other parts of the world build bomb shelters. She said it was very likely that there would be a nuclear war. And she, you know, she did always encourage people to sort of pray that this would not happen. But she kept giving these messages that made people conclude that, okay, this is really those earth changes. This is really what all these other prophecies, not only in our movement, but in the Bible and Edgar Casey and other um, alternative prophecies, that they were all coming to pass at once and that this was all going to somehow happen in, around the period of 1989 to 90. So that's when we built these shelters. And, um, you know, the attempt to rationalize after the fact is sort of you know, why did we do this? Or why did we spend so much money? I mean, and that was one of the things that sort of led me to, to question not the basic ideas, but more the decision-making process and the idea that we had a sort of a sole leader that was the only one who could get official communications from divine beings and masters. Like, I felt that there was something gravely wrong with this decision-making process that had allowed this to happen, that had allowed so much of our hard-earned money of the money of the members to be put into this project, which probably could have been done much more cheaply and much in a much less elaborate fashion if it weren't for the acceleration that was um, basically being driven by this kind of dynamic between my mother and her closest followers. A sort of, you know, well, how should we prepare and what should we do? And it's sort of the ante kept being upped until, you know, a group, we were never more than maybe, we never really had more than maybe 10,000 dedicated members, maybe 50,000 people around the world. And we built this huge shelter complex that cost millions of dollars and almost bankrupted the group. And so I felt like this was a big failure of our uh, leadership. And I was on the board of the directors of the church at the time. And, you know, so it, led to this period of questioning. We really tried to do some serious restructuring and we even, we even invited in a management consultant and my mother was gonna step back and she wasn't gonna run the church anymore. She was just gonna provide you know, spiritual guidance. So there was an attempt to really try to restructure it and that I was involved in. I was in my early mid twenties when all this happened. So, um, you know, I eventually left. I always thought, well, maybe I'll go back someday. I still care quite a bit about the place, the people, the, you know, all the people that I knew, all the people who raised me, who were my teachers, because I went to the church, church schools up through 12th grade, for the most part, you know, they were all really interesting people. <laughs> they were all uh, very spiritual people. They were people who'd chosen to live their lives in a very different way. And I really wanted all that work to count for something. And so, you know, eventually I realized that I probably wasn't going to be able to reform it in the ways that I had hoped it could be reformed. And therefore I decided the next best thing was to write about it, to share my experience with others, to try to occupy this kind of somewhat neutral space in between being, you know, an insider and an outsider and to hope that people could learn from the experience. Beautiful. Um, it's very fast. I mean, I, we, we share a lot, but we'll get into this in, in a minute because the one last thing I want to touch on in the book 
um, because you're pretty upfront as in the book. I mean, you're, you're very vulnerable in the book and, and honest about your own experience. And at this time of the, first I have a, I have a quick question. How many people, the bunker that you built was built for how many to, to live in? We built a shelter that could have fit around 750 people, but in a pinch, it could have fit more, probably a few mm. hundred more. Um, but then there were also shelters that were built nearby by church members that could have also probably fit several hundred to a thousand okay. people. So you had basically about room for about 2,500 people in shelters, which were not all completed actually at the time we, we had drills right <laughs> they, they eventually were completed and so now they're sort of like there as this kind of white elephant i mean maybe some people are thinking oh we might need them now <laughs> <laughs> they're still right they're they're, they're a reminder of, of, of the past <laughs> is the, is the cold um, war seems to be you know returning i think some people feel like well maybe she was right all along we just got the timing a little off Right. But I, you know, my criticisms were more of the, you know, decision-making process. I don't think that building shelters in and of themselves is, is, is a, such a horrible idea, but I do think it's a mistake to try to plan for, you know, essentially the end of life as we know it. I mean, we had seven years worth of food. We had, you know, it was a lot more than just fallout shelters. Right. Of course. Now, uh, this was this was instigated by prophecies from your mom so she would she would get prophecies from divine sources giving her uh wisdom predictive wisdom and in the book you talk about how she was grooming you to also take divine prophecies and you even got some at least some information um and i'm curious how you see that now because you know and i'll you and i share some background. I, I, I was in a spiritual community. I was my teacher's assistant. And a lot of interesting things happened uh, that I can't explain um, and, and that I believe were real uh -huh. in, in, in ways that don't sound plausible. <laughs> and there was a lot of craziness going on. So that, yeah. that, that was also true. But I'm curious because it's, I can't remember what you said, but in, in your book, you were you were talking about the experience of how you would get things visually. Um, mm -hmm. And so I was curious, because it's basically your mom was putting an enormous amount of responsibility on you because you were gonna pull down information from divine sources and people were gonna really act on that information. <laughs> That's an incredible responsibility for a young woman to be holding. Yes, um, you know, I've, spent a lot of time thinking about or wondering sort of why or how she was, you know, what did she really believe about the sources of the inspiration? Because, you know, some people who have pre were previously in the church, I mean, first of all, I'll say that my parents were both people around whom things seemed, magical things seemed to happen, you know, and they were just, they just sort of occupied the space of potentiality. And I think that people believe that there were healings, for example, that occurred in their presence. I think people believe that there were, you know, um, angelic presences. I mean, even when I was a small child, there was this idea that even 
musical tones could be played from other realms and you know that um that we were living in a time when there was possibility of communication uh, between humans and, and divine beings and that essentially we were all on our way to becoming divine beings and so um i i know there are people who who think that my parents sort of acted uh selfishly or you know gave self-serving messages to people um and in my future work i hope to focus on the whole process of channeling and revelation because what i've kind of come to what my current working theories are is that is that um the channeling process works a lot like a creative process in the sense that um you know an artist may sort of open themselves up to some artwork that they think they'd like to do but often the artwork will arrive in their mind sort of as an image fully formed and then and, and, and writers as well the writers talk about their characters you know taking over the story or not behaving the way they should be you know whatever so i do think there's something going on where my parents had read a lot of esoteric and spiritual literature that they put themselves in the mindset that they were trying to receive new revelations along those same lines they were both capable of giving these really incredible you might call them sermons but they were you know live public channeled messages they didn't use the word channeling they call them dictations they were believed to be coming from god from you know not quote ordinary dead people you know so this was not supposed to be spiritualism <clears throat> and so they really wanted to distinguish themselves from that and in my academic work i've definitely been studying spiritualism and it's really kind of a you know it, it's not like there's a bright line between spiritualism and the ascended master movements there's certainly and you know they they believed and they would give dictations from recently dead people who were supposed to be um now divine beings so people who'd been in our movement would pass on and then in fact my mother took dictations from my father after he died so um but these were really powerful motivational sermons if you know if you don't believe they're coming from god you could call them powerful motivation motivational sermons they often quoted from the bible from the dhammapada from other upanishads from other sacred texts um if you listen to enough of them you might feel that they were it somewhat certain themes kept cropping up over and over again but there was certainly a lot of theological innovation that happened and and mystical transport i mean my, my mother could just rhapsodize on saint john of the cross and his living flame of love poem and that was just in a, a sermon she she would also give ordinary sermons in addition to to dictation so you know i would say that probably 85 percent of what she did was just this sort of motivational transformational stuff when you got into the prophecies she would always say oh this is uh not what has to happen it could be changed and that was our whole belief system was that if you alter behavior if you change your if you gave enough prayers or decrees that you could stop whatever it was so in a sense you could say the prophecies were really a form of motivation and a form of legitimation um so 
in some sense, I guess I felt special that I was being singled out for this role, but it was really not something I really wanted. I really, really wanted to leave and to go out and have some kind of job or career or life on my own so that I would have something to bring back to the community because I cared about it. And I didn't feel that, you know, just when I was 17 years old was when I started being trained to do this work. So and I, I'd gone to college when I was 15. So, you know, I was, I took a break from college, began doing this training. Then I went back and got my degree in journalism and immediately like the, the day after my last final, you know, we were on the road to Montana. And um, so I never really had a chance to live as an adult in the world um, prior to the time I left the church in 1993 after the whole shelter episode. So, um, you know, I haven't, I don't really complain about the fact that I was roped into this, you know, but because I willingly did participate and I thought I was saving and helping the church. And I thought that these revelations, which came to me were designed to help us help give us the next step forward, right? Where do we go after the shelter, you know, the prophesied events, the dates came and went, there, there was no war, you know, where do we go from here? And that was where my, one of my dictations, which was never publicly acknowledged, my mother just basically took it out and read it to people. Um, that that was, um, my contribution to helping people sort of return and come back and figure out where do they go from here. Um, and because, you know, we had a school, we had alternative healing, we wanted to have an alternative medicine retreat there. We, we had, there was a hot spring spa. I mean, there were all kinds of good positive things we were planning to do on that land in Montana. Um, and it just so happened that we ended up building shelters first and kind of using up most of the money that we had planned to use to build a school and a church and everything. So it kind of derailed the whole thing. And I felt that some of it had to do with my mother's, the fact that the entire structure was so dependent on her personality, which of course is one of the risks when you have a charismatic leader, in which I, I'm sure that you, you've experienced and um, would be happy and interested to hear, you know, some of your experiences around charismatic leaders. I mean, very much so. Uh, and yeah, it's very challenging. So, so in relation to like prophecies, I, I sometimes I like to use a phrase creative illumination to describe spiritual revelation. And that it's spiritual revelation to me is never purely passive. Mm -hmm. You're not just given the truth. Uh, there's always some kind of meaning making going. You're always co-creating that. And, and that was actually a huge help to me in my spiritual path because I, I recognized that I was an active participant in what, in what was happening. Uh, but that also meant that my foibles were, you know, potentially going to color what what I walked away with, which was, you know, I mean, I, I don't I don't think you can avoid that, but if you are if you're really believing, and you know, I've I've worked with a charismatic leader, who who sometimes really believed he was seeing the truth, 
and everyone else believed he was seeing the truth. And sometimes it turned out maybe it wasn't the truth, but you know we had already acted on it. Uh, and and that gets challenging. I think anytime that you have um, excessive faith in the vision of one person, uh, it, it puts the whole structure on a very tentative foundation uh, because you know we would all like to believe there's a possibility for a person to be perfectly open, but it seems like a really risky bet. Uh, you know, if you look at the if you look at at the history and and the data, uh, it doesn't appear to happen. Uh, you know, and the only people that it even may have happened to usually were around a long, long time ago uh, when, when it's unclear. Say, when you say open, you mean sort of open, sort of transparently able to see into the divine. Yeah, I mean, I mean, truly open to the to divine mind, to higher wisdom, untainted by personal perspectives, you know, because you look later, even at the stuff, some of the things I read in your book that your mom said, or things I experienced, you know, from my own teacher, in retrospect, you can see the self-serving nature of some of the things that were handed down as truth. Now, that doesn't mean that they were doing it on purpose, but it certainly opens the door for the possibility that that a person's revelations were being influenced by their own circumstance. Uh, and, and that is certainly the way many people walk away from those situations, you know, believing that's what happened. Right. I mean, one of the things that, okay, so first of all, what, I just want to circle back and pick up on something that I meant to say when I was talking about the whole channeling process is that I think that it's pretty normal, actually, for people to bring in their own biases and experience. I don't actually think there is such a thing as a transparent lens. And, and I don't necessarily even, because I consider myself agnostic, I don't necessarily even believe that there is a divine realm or that, that, that the divine realm could can be accessed by and, and understood by people. That doesn't mean I don't think that people can't come up with new revelations and basically new approaches to ultimate purpose and how to worship and how to organize ourselves and you know I like John Klimo's book on channeling I think he breaks down like sort of seven different types of information that come out in channel material and you know a lot of it is just it's personal inspiration you know there's poetry there's um you know sometimes there's factual veridical information you know people used to ask my mother well you know can't you tell us, you know, what is the next law of physics or what is like, you know, um, and she would say, well, I don't have the vessel for that, right? I'm not trained as a physicist. Um, but, you know, Jesus was a Palestinian Jew, you know, uh, he was speaking to people in his time. He was a reformer. Uh, that's how I see him anyway. Um, you know, the Buddha was lived in time, and I've gotten into huge arguments with Buddhists about the historical Buddha, you know, because people are very invested in the idea that every word that has accrued around the Buddha was actually said by the historic Siddhartha, which we know just from the, just from the religious studies is 
impossible because there's so many different texts and traditions that have accumulated around this real historical figure. So I mean, my parents were operating within this scene that was already set by this previous group or organization called the IM Religious Activity, which was the ones that came up with the idea of a messenger, that there was only supposed to be one or two anointed or authorized messengers. So there was this built-in tension because a lot of their teachings were telling people, you can access divine wisdom through your own higher self. You don't need a guru. Don't come to me. I mean, like that was part of their teaching. Do not, you don't need a guru. You can ask God yourself, right? But then there are always these extra reasons why you might need a guru. It could help you get through your karma faster. You, you were blinded by your own karma, which you couldn't see. The guru could see it better than you could. And so th these were the kinds of situations where I felt that my mother got into some very dicey areas, you know, and, and I felt that there was, as I mentioned, just kind of a flaw in the whole system. But obviously there's a flaw in our belief that there is revelation and that some people are authentic because there were so many people who would come to my mother and they would say, well, you ate meat. So you must not be a true and genuine, you know, vessel. Um, and these same kinds of arguments about authenticity were going on among spiritualists and mediums. It was sort of like, well, this person is, you know, is married or they have children or they can't be the authentic one, you know. And I've been thinking a lot about what I call the myth of authenticity. And I, I encourage people to move perhaps away from that and more towards something like utility. Does this spiritual teaching work for me in my life now where I'm at? Is it useful? Is it helpful? And if so, then, you know, and obviously I'm sure people say, well, this just evolves into postmodern, you know, everything, everyone has their own truth as, you know, the thing that people hate the most about the new age, I guess. But, um, I know what's the alternative? The alternative is to suggest that there are certain authentic sources who, of which everything they say is correct. And that asks us to sort of turn off our, our discernment. You know, even my mother get, used to get up and give lectures against idolatry. And she would say, um, don't put me on a pedestal, question me, you know. So she was a very difficult, person to work for in the sense because she did give a lot of contradictory um, uh, guidelines and people would run around following her with tape recorders <laughs> transcribing everything she said well you said this and she would say well that was three months ago don't hold me to that thing like sort of I'm spontaneous I'm in the moment I'm you know and so uh, these are all the kinds of difficulties that happen when you have a, a living charismatic leader who's still actively creating new traditions and also wants to remain relevant, doesn't want to be held to their old, you know, past traditions. So it's a dynamic process. I hope I didn't go. No, that's great. I, 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 think, I think we have a lot more to talk about probably that we're going to get to today in terms of the authenticity versus sort of prag pragmatic considerations, which I think is a fantastic conversation. And I think, um, I mean, I agree with you. And I, 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 
hearing you, I think, well, I may be more of a believer in some ways, but I definitely, I feel that the pragmatic lens is a crucial one that should never be given up, especially now, you know? Um, and I think it's a fascinating conversation because I do think there are more authentic, more authentic versus less authentic. I mean, I'm sure that's true, but that's just one dimension, you know? Yeah. And, and I don't know that anyone is perfectly authentic. You know, as I said earlier, that you hear about some, but they were a long time ago. Well, I mean, it's like how we judge authenticity is, does it conform to what I think someone in this particular tradition should say? And right. you think the authentic, but the authentic teacher has to also go against conventional wisdom enough so that it sounds like something new and different and it doesn't sound like just the same old whatever. And I think, you know, <laughs> there was this group called the Jesus Seminar who, they're a little discredited now, but they spent a lot of time trying to figure out what, which ones of Jesus sayings in the Bible were truly authentic. And um, they decided that in order for it to be authentic, it had to somewhat cut against the grain of conventional wisdom in his day, because otherwise he wouldn't have become such a controversial figure. <laughs> well, it, I, I remember reading there, uh, Honest to Jesus, I think it was called. Uh, yeah, there were a bunch of different books that came out by different members of that seminar. Um, mm -hmm. and, and we certainly do have ways of ranking different sayings from the Bible as far as which ones which ones are attested to in the best translations, which ones might have been added in by a later scribe, you know, like they do have ways of figuring those things out. But, you know, I think we're probably never going to 100% know the authentic Jesus because he didn't write anything. And everything that we know is filtered through the lens of people that were um, probably writing decades after he died. Absolutely. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna put the authenticity question and a tab for a later conversation okay. with you. But I think it would be fantastic just to make a note of, to really talk someday about how do you determine what's authentic for you spiritually? You know, what, what guidelines would be helpful to people? So let, we're just gonna bookmark that because I think that's a fascinating conversation, which leads directly to kind of the main kind of concluding point I wanted to, to talk to you about. Yes. So. So here you are, and hearing your story just now, because what I what I heard from you now, which was not in your book, was was about all the plans that that didn't occur because you spent all the money on the bunkers that were unnecessary. Um, and you know when that kind of thing touches me, because I just think, God, you know, who knows what could have happened if if all of that energy had not gone to bunkers, but had been used to create the space that, that you were just envisioning and, and what value it could have brought uh, instead of essentially discrediting the whole thing, um, which is kind of the, the end result. So you and I have similar experience. I mean, I was in a spiritual community for a long time with a very charismatic leader who was a, a mixture of true inspiration. Uh, he had a very powerful effect on me uh, on lots of occasions, which I certainly can't deny uh, on balance, I, I feel that I was 
I, I was given much more than, than the cost. And there was certainly cost. Uh, and he was erratic. And, and he did things that, in retrospect, especially now, look really inexcusable. And, and, and yet, you know, at the time, it's very difficult to explain to anyone why you would go along with things, which, which when questioned, you can't deny they look crazy, but yeah. it's, it's different. The inside view is different. There's a, there's a different context that you're holding that, that doesn't translate anymore when you're outside of that context. Uh, and, and as you know, before we started the official interview, as we were speaking about, it's too easy to paint a picture, which is psychotic leader, you know, infantile, needy individuals, perfect combination for insanity. But the reality is a lot more complicated than that. And, and you know, obviously, since my community ended, I've really been thinking about my participation in that. Not only why I was involved, because I kind of know why I was involved. I was involved because of, of the, a lot of incredible things that were occurring. Uh, but I think a lot about why, why I seem to benefit a lot more than, than some people did uh, and, and somehow avoided a lot of the damage uh, that others I know have, have endured. And, I, and my heart goes out to people who are really hurt. Um, and I just, you know, you are someone I can, I feel the, you know, we have this, this, this is kind of a, I know that you know that you know that I know kind of experience. And I know that you've thought a lot about it. It's obviously, you know, your book, because I've avoided writing anything like this so far, except in fiction, because I don't really know how to present that story in a way, you know, they wanted, there were people who want, who did a documentary on it. They wanted me to be involved, but there was no way. Cause I said, there's nothing you can do in a documentary like that, except interview some people who are going to say it was utterly insane mm -hmm. and crazy. And, or other people who think it's totally misunderstood. It's the greatest thing that ever happened. And it really is the greatest thing that ever happened. And then you're just going to let people decide for themselves because there isn't really any way to explore the middle ground there. And I'm just, would love to hear anything you, you have to say about the middle ground between the, the, you know, between the, this is the greatest thing that ever happened side and that this is total insanity side. Right. Um, well, I, yes, I think our positions are very similar. Um, it's very difficult to, Given the stereotypes about cults, it's very difficult to humanize anyone who says anything other than this was a horrible institution and I'm sorry I got involved in it. You know, I, even in my book, I had written whole chapters, I'd interviewed, I'd done at least interviews with 50 or 60 people who'd been involved in the movement. I wanted to make them into characters in the story. This was about them too. And I found it very difficult to get something like that published. Um, you know, the, it was felt that the market was really around personal stories and my personal stories being dramatic. And so I, you know, I do feel that my book in some way 
you know, I, there were multiple goals for me in writing the book. Number one is I did want to say, how does, how do things like this happen with ordinary people that could have been you, you know, because people read about it from afar and they see it like when something outrageous happens and they don't realize that these are actually people that have real hopes and dreams and histories and life experience before and after being in the group. And so that was something I was quite frustrated with not being able to put in my book. But I think the book did do something in, in terms of occupying the middle ground. I was already, when I wrote the book, kind of on my way to wanting to become a religion scholar. I'd read a lot of the material. I was grateful and appreciative of the scholars who had taken the time to understand our thought world, because that's something that never gets done. Um, you know, but there's one statement I express in the book where I say that I, at times I wish there was some outside force that would come and say like, the stuff that you're going through isn't okay. Like you don't really want to have a leader who's completely, you know, surrounded by people who support their um, their need to continue to occupy the center of attention in spite of the damage it might be doing to people around them, including my mother who got very out of touch with the damage that this shelter episode was doing to not only adults who were working around the clock, but also their children who went through periods of one or two years of not having regular schooling, some of them, you know, uh, working in, in the fields, you know, to help grow, you know, it was an interesting experience, but some of those children are still struggling to make sense of it. And I think, you know, Jessica Pratazina is someone who grew up in a new religion and she's coined this, she, she talks about, if you, if you were in a group and the group no longer exists, that it's like growing up in a country that you can never go back to, <laughs> you know? And there is this sort of sense of mourning, of loss, and something that's I've recently been looking at is some of the literature on deconversion, because it shows the multiple directions people can go in once they leave the group. They may go into a similar group, they may, you know, become totally secular, not involved in any group. They may go back to a traditional religion. They may have a mourning period. Um, and I think, you know, even many Catholics today feel that they're in mourning, right? They can't accept things that their church has done. So I think, you know, it's important to promote greater accountability and transparency for leaders. I think it's important to promote at least greater understanding on the part of the general public so that they they're not so quick to ostracize and condemn so-called cults because in the in the long run that only hurts the vulnerable people in the group it hurts the children you know it messes up custody battles uh and you know even the groups are we might think of the leader was so irrational um you know and couldn't be talked to I think almost all the leaders eventually come up against some limit <laughs> to their behavior and realize that they need to reassess and take stock. And, you know, fortunately that happened in your case. I think in my mother's case, she tried to do that. I think that it was difficult because she was ha had dementia and early onset dementia. And so that's sort of the last part of my book. And I, I think it was kind of a real tragedy. And it was also an incredible amount of stress and pressure on her to have to be this focal point for thousands of people all the time. And I think that stress probably played a role in her, uh, her health problems. 
I'm sure I'm sure it did. And and uh, I can see that in, in my community as well. The pressure on the leader is uh, is definitely a factor in, in everything. And I guess what I you know, I, my community ended and initially I didn't I didn't really know what I was going to do next you know i i often describe it's like um it's like getting pushed off the back of a pickup truck on the highway you know suddenly you're on the road going where do i go now <laughs> i don't know what to do um and i mean it was 20 years in community so uh <clears throat> and i didn't i wasn't born into it in the way that you were so you know i i had left a career and a in a marriage and a life and joined a community and then 20 years later was just out Wow. But I had been very prominent in the community uh -huh. and I've been teaching a lot. And, uh -huh. and over a few years, I kind of struggled and I had this beautiful moment with someone, a friend of mine, uh, because I, I was saying, you know, people really, they kind of wanted, a lot of people who weren't so involved with the things that were negative wanted to continue and they wanted to work with me. And I didn't really want to do that. Um, uh -huh. And in this conversation, this friend of mine said to me, you know, you can teach differently. You can do it any way you want to. It doesn't have to be a mess. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And I really thought, wow, that's interesting. You know, maybe there's a way that I can give people the benefit of, of not just the good things I experienced, but also the bad things, also the things I saw that didn't work. Yeah. Uh, and, and create a, a spiritual atmosphere that would be, you know, truly optimize everyone's benefit mm -hmm. in the ways that, that mine, I, I was, I received so much, so much spiritual experience, so much inspiration, so much knowledge. Um, and I wouldn't be who I am today without it, without it all. But how, how could that become available and, you know, avoid, the first thing I would want to avoid is having the power to tell anybody what to do or how to live. That just, it sounds like a recipe for disaster. You know, how do I know how <laughs> you should, you know, I, I, I just, I just want to stay away from that. The second thing that I learned, and I don't know how this was in your community, but you should always have a, have an open door, which means people can come and people can go. And, and I think we could have avoided so many of our problems if when it came time, when someone wanted to leave, rather than force them to leave in disgrace and shame, you just thank them for their generosity of spirit for all the years they had given, yeah. honor them, you know, wish them well, well, tell them they're always welcome back. I, you know, I don't know why that's, that seems so obvious to me now, but it wasn't generally the way we were operating. Yeah, we, we did not have very good systems to deal with any kind of internal um, negative feedback. Um, and there were any number of people who found themselves booted out, you know, after voicing some kind of criticism. And I always felt that was very wrong. And I think that my, you know, my parents were kind of the culture that they inherited thought this was going to be a modern day mystery school, quote unquote, and we were all initiates and therefore people had to act sort of like you would like in a martial arts studio or something like that with this great deference and respect. And, you know, I think that they were not able to figure out what needed to be changed about that culture or why, mm -hmm. you know, why it was not workable today. And, you know, it was kind of an, 
a haphazard attempt to apply Eastern spirituality in, in Western culture. And it, it, you know, it has a, has a long history going back to the 19th century. But anyway, I've, it sounds great what you're doing. Uh, you know, I, I think that I had a number of ideas about how, you know, what would be a great organizational structure that would sort of be self-correcting, that would, mm. that would select out, you know, these types of problems. And, you know, I think it's tough because people do in the end sort of kind of want someone to come along with a strong vision. And uh, it's a lot harder to do something that's a collaborative vision. Yes. It, it is, and, I, and I'm hoping it's it's not impossible. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so we will we'll have that conversation too someday. So I'd love to hear more of your thoughts on it. Can I ask you one last question? Um, sure. Because our issue is about emerging spiritual traditions and religious adaptation, and the idea is there's always going to be new traditions emerging, right? That the times will always create new spiritual forms, and long established traditions will always need to be involved in some kind of adaptive process to come to the times. What I'm excited about and why I wanted to do this issue of the magazine uh, is there is now a growing scholarship in this area where, uh, you know, in an academic sense, these things are being taken seriously and studied so that we can learn how this works how it works well, how it works poorly, uh, you know, and hopefully, um, yeah, hopefully understand the mechanisms of, of spiritual emergence and religious adaptation. And I would, and this is part of your, of, of your work, certainly. And so I would love to hear you, just any final words you have about this emerging academic discipline and its value for the world. So I think that um, we're kind of in the birth throes of a new phase of modernity in which, you know, the old structures are no longer working, especially with respect to religion. Um, even in the past 20 years, deconversion is just the pace has increased, but yet there's a widespread spiritual longing. And so I think that this is a perfect time to try to create, we ask ourselves what the structure would look like if we wanted to create less harmful spiritual movements and, uh, and systems for people so that they can get their spiritual needs met without having to be worried about being abused. Mm -hmm. Right, absolutely. I, I think that's, that's fantastic. So I'm going to I'm, I, as much as I want to continue to talk to you, I'm going to end this particular interview now. Uh, thank you very much for being uh, willing to speak with me. Uh, this has been very fascinating. So I really, I really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it too. And I'm very pleased to hear about your work and your path. It sounds exciting.